Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoga, the Talberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together, we can help make our world at least a bit better. We live in a world where the conflict between autocracy and democracy seems to be intensifying. Speaking truth to power has never been more important or perhaps more dangerous. I am Alan Stoga, chairman of the Telberg Foundation, and I recently had the opportunity to host a conversation among three people who know those dangers. Sitawa Nimwali, Kenya poet and performer, Shahadu Alam, Bangladeshi photographer and political activist, Jared Genser, American human rights lawyer. Listen as they discuss the challenges and dangers of democracy under pressure. Uh, we're going to start with a poem. So um, this particular poem actually comes out of the post-election violence in Kenya in 2007-2008. And it is called Names of the Dead. And um, I'm going to begin by calling some of the names, some of the dead, um, because they are part of the poem. James Odhiambo, 24 years, petrol attendant, Kakamega. Lucas Sang, adult, athlete, runner, Rift Valley. Cheriot Koske, adult, Rift Valley. George Kibogo, adult, Kiamba Eldoret. Simon Gavimba, adult, Kiamba Eldoret. Margaret Wanjiro, adult, Kiamba Eldoret. Anne Wanjiro, 10 years, Kiamba Eldoret. Joyce, one year, Kiamba Eldoret. Names of the dead. I collect names of the dead. Names of the 1300 dead. Let other people amass land, cars, shoes. Let them boast about those things. It is me who will save the names of the dead, the names of the lives we destroyed. In the aftermath of primitive pride, toxic adults reverted to childish games, blatant, discolored with rage. They refused to follow rules, stole the people's election, and then stood firm, blameless, clean. When the buildings stopped burning, when machetes were blunted, when packs of hunting gangs dispersed, when fear receded, when tempers abated, and the smoke finally drifted away, 1,300 lay dead. And we looked on the work of our hands, unrepentant, not an ounce of regret furrowed our brow. Instead, we shouted, forget, forget, forget. Their names we must forget. 
I collect the names of the dead, the names of the 1300 dead. <laughs> Let other people amass cars, land, shoes. Let them preen about those things. It is me who will save the names of the dead, the names of the lives we destroyed. Names come to me from unexpected places. Slowly, slowly, one by one, they slip past offended silence. Glide knife-like through indifferent kindness. Soundless, they must avoid detection. Shh. Some others arrive banging, loudly wailing. Insistent, inconvenient. They won't be silenced. No matter how they appear, I place them in jars with infant tenderness, line them along shelves, lids shut tight. They cannot escape. Or worse, get stolen by those who hide the names of the dead, by those who vanish names like trails of smoke. Hmm. No names. No sin, no sin, no crime. Say it with me. No names, no sin, no sin, no crime. No names, no sin, no sin, no crime. Thank you. <laughs> Who cares? We have such a distinguished uh, panel here, uh, two people on two different sides of the who cares spectrum, yeah? And um, one of the interesting things for me is watching the changes in speaking truth to power. In the 1980s and 1990s when we had what I consider real dictators. It was incredibly dangerous and incredibly effective when you spoke up. It has changed so that very often you're speaking and they let you speak. And it doesn't matter that much, but then sometimes it matters. And then there's another change that I've noticed in that the public, are also not as receptive sometimes to the efforts that you're making as somebody who speaks truth to power. So, we're going to begin with you. Tough one. After that, to take it on. But uh, I would like to step back a little bit in the, in the sense that uh, if, if it is a situation where you're trying to bring about a change and there is uh, a power and entity on the other side, you, you need to take stock. You need to, beyond the emotions, beyond the passion, you need to take a cool, calculated look at what, uh, what resources you have, how you fight. If you're to fight, you fight to win. Uh, and I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not a great believer in fighting for the sake of fighting. I think you tend to go for a result. And we look to see what they have. Uh, and in all our situations, pretty much, they have money, they have muscle. There's something else which we don't always take into account. 
They have a huge asset, shamelessness. It is a very powerful asset because not having it limits us in many ways. There are things you simply cannot do because it's shameful. You wouldn't do it. But if you're shameless, suddenly you're liberated. You have an ability that others do not have. And one has to need to be able to deal with that as well. Encountering it, I think one of the things we've thought about is we often take on the same tools. You know, they have money and they have muscle and we try and counter them with not necessarily money, but using the same terrain. And I think that's foolish uh, in the sense that, you know, you're walking into their home territory. I think I would rather bring them, drag them to the mud where I am, where it's tougher to go through, where it's much more difficult. Guerrilla warfare, if you like. But we forget tools that we have, strengths that we have. One is integrity. And I think that brings along with it certain things which are very worthwhile. You have trust. There are a large number of people who believe in you. And there is that word that was used many, many times before, empathy. Uh, and those are also powerful tools because they can mobilize things. And, you know, uh, we, we tend to look at a particular regime or a situation. We think uh, the answer is to change regime. Uh, I, I actually think that's a pretty uh, silly argument because... Uh, you know, obviously you need to look to see what the alternatives are. And in a situation like mine, uh, I think if the setup is such where there is total impunity, where you can do whatever you do and get away with it, I think Gabriel sitting in that seat would probably do similar things. Uh, because there is nothing stopping you from doing it. There is the benefit, direct benefit of what you can get. And, you know, we were talking about this earlier in terms of, I, I asked him, you know, what threats do you face? And he says, I've had a loaded gun pointed at me. Well, in my case, uh, I'd left Bangladesh after it became an independent country. We, we had played a very important role in bringing about its independence. I come back to find it run by an autocratic general, which is not the Bangladesh we had hoped for or dreamed about. Uh, and at that time, I had a loaded gun pointed at my head. Uh, during the BNP regime, we, we managed to bring down this general. and We got what we thought would be democracy. And this new democratic leader during that time, I have, this is one of eight knife wounds I got. The later regime tortures me, puts me in jail there. It's equal opportunity. They're, they're pretty fair when you come to that. You know, uh, you can't really blame one or the other. So this is what happens. So unless you actually have in place a systemic shift, I do not believe regime change in itself is going to achieve things. So while we hate the people who are there, I think merely getting rid of them is a very short-sighted goal. And I think one of the things we need to work out is a process through which they have to get there, if they get there, which has a built-in mechanism for check and balance, which requires accountability, which requires transparency. And unless we have put those things in place, simply replacing the person at the top is 
a futile exercise in my opinion. So how do we, how do you do that? And that really is what I've been doing. I mean, rather than talk about the rest and, you know, uh, all the things they do, I'll talk in strategic terms and what we've thought about. And I was talking to Martin earlier on and he was saying, why don't you enter into politics? Or something to that effect. Uh, well, I am a political animal because I recognize that politics is the biggest game in town. You need to take stock of it. And if, if you're going to fight, you fight with most powerful weapons. The reason I became a photographer is because I recognize it was the powerful tool that it is. Uh, and I recognize how others use this medium to, to such great effect. Uh, so I made a very conscious decision of working on three areas of intervention. Media, education, and culture. Uh, I left out religion, though religion too is a very powerful tool, largely because when it comes to religion, in my assessment, people are not so flexible. I am a Muslim by all definitions because I'm born in a Muslim family, I'm brought, brought up in a Muslim culture. I, I never chose to be a Muslim. Uh, that was never an identity I took on because I recognized it was better or different to any of the others. It's an accident of birth to a large extent. And I suspect that is true for most people. They are who they are, not merely because of religion, but a whole range of things. But very few people consciously shift religion because of logic, because of persuasion. But in the other cases, there is that, sh that shift is much more possible. So in order to be strategic, you work on what you can do. Uh, and I'm active in these regions, and I've made conscious decisions at another level. As, as a photographer, I produce work. As a writer, I produce work. But I also recognize that one of the things that these people have done, the autocrats, the despots, is they've actually destroyed institutions. Very deliberately, very clinically, they've destroyed the judiciary, they've destroyed the police, they've destroyed the bureaucracy. And for me, something even worse, they have systematically destroyed the education system. So what I've tried to do is do the reverse, to try and build stable institutions which over time have the resilience to be able to resist structures such as this. Well, if there's fear to a great enough extent, if you stop questioning, if you stop thinking, over a period of time you lose the capability of questioning. And what we're trying to do is to create a space where people can breathe again, where you can think again. Uh, and we've done that through several mechanisms, but our most recent, and I'll end with that, is we've created a series of products, app, merchandise, very practical things, called Chintar Kurak, which means food for thought. And within that, there is a subset which is called disobedient objects. And what you do is you make a mug or a t-shirt or something like that, within which there is subliminal message. And you might not perhaps have the oomph to stand up and shout against something, but maybe you can sip from a mug that has a slightly provocative statement. And you find ways, and you give people tools through which they can resist find ways through which they create space for themselves. 
And that is what we're hoping to do. If you feel that the world lacks global leaders, please help support the Talberg Foundation programs. Individual donations are being accepted at talbergfoundation.org slash donate. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org slash donate. Um, thank you very much, um, Shaidal. Um, Jared, you have been... Um, made a career of defending people who are, who are speaking truth to power and getting themselves into trouble, into good trouble. Tell us about that. Yeah, I like to say that uh, most of my best friends are ex-cons uh, and often recidivists at that. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, so I've, I'm about 20 years into my career now and uh, uh, it has been uh, quite a ride uh, as an international human rights lawyer. Uh, my life's mission has been to support people like Scheidel when uh, they get themselves into serious trouble. Uh, because it was my experience really from the outset um, that if you can be careful about the cases that you select and represent people whose detentions are indicative of broader abuses in a country, a political leader, a human rights lawyer, a journalist, a civil society activist, um, then you can use their case and you can use storytelling, which was just being uh, described earlier, to shine a bright light on what a dictator is doing um, and to hold them accountable uh, and to speak truth to power and to amplify uh, the voices of my own clients. Ordinarily, I'm in the background on cases. Um, uh, when I'm lucky, I have a spouse of a political prisoner who can learn how to be an effective advocate for their loved one, and then I can provide the support to help them figure out what's the right set of legal, political, and public relations actions that you can take over time to dramatically increase the pressure uh, on a government. This is asymmetric warfare uh, at its finest, guerrilla warfare at its finest. You know, dictators come with often unlimited resources um, and... Uh, and weapons and you know military police and security forces uh, right you're not going to beat them uh, at their own game and so the reality is that when you know a person's life is at stake giving up is not an option um, you have to persevere you have to persist and you have to win uh, at the end of the day it's all about winning uh, and everything is at stake for my clients uh, and for their families um, and uh, because this is the thing that we are focused on solely and exclusively, and dictators have lots of concerns, it's really about elevating the costs dramatically above the benefits to the dictator to force them to capitulate. And to be very, very clear, I mean, I've gone up against 20, 25 dictatorships over my career, and despite culture and religion and geography, they all act actually in very similar ways um, because we're all human beings uh, at our core and our most based instinct. And, and by that... Uh, you know, what I would say is the common um, and the most common uh, emotion that dictators feel and impose on others is fear, right? Uh, they rule their population by fear, um, imposing fear of uh, murder, of imprisonment, of uh, torture uh, in order to maintain their iron grip on power. Uh, and this is what they inspire in others uh, so that people are afraid and are not willing to take risks or chances. Um, and in order to defeat a dictator, you have to inspire fear in them, right? And what do, are dictators afraid of? Dictators are afraid of hard power. They're not afraid of condemnations or, um, you know, uh, e even necessarily protests or otherwise. They fear 
the possibility of justice and accountability. They fear losing power. They fear their families being targeted. They fear their corrupt assets being seized and taken from them. Uh, and they, see, they also fear Ceausescu being dragged into the streets and murdered by their own people, right? And so this is what you have to raise as a possibility in order to get a high-profile political prisoner out of jail. Um, Interestingly enough, people think as a human rights lawyer that I must just all be name and shame, yelling from the rooftops, etc. But actually, as a, as, a, as a lawyer, and as a human rights lawyer in particular, I'm tactically neutral. Right? So a lot of my cases, because of their profile, are public. But I've gotten many political prisoners out of jail through private negotiation, too. And so in, every, in any given moment, you have to say, what should you be doing now that's going to maximize the impact to get the person uh, out of jail? And what I've learned over the course of my career is that, you know, if you take a hundred things you could do to help a political prisoner, and you, if you sequence them in one way, it will be meaningless, and in another way, it will have a big impact. So take three things you do on a case. Take a case to the UN to get the United Nations Working Group on Arbitrary Detention to say the person is legally detained. And placing an op-ed in a newspaper and doing a press conference with, let's say, because I'm an American, in the United States with a bunch of members of Congress. If you do those three things separated out by a few months at a time, the dictatorship will see it, but it will be, you know, a little blip on their radar, a little blip on their radar, right? But if you time it to happen at the same time, you win the case at the UN, you announce it in a Washington Post op-ed the same day you do a press conference on Capitol Hill, then all of a sudden the dictatorship notices this, and this is becoming a problem. And it turns out that lots of ongoing low-level protests are, um, you know, has no impact on a dictator because they, it's just, you know, they're, they become immune to even worrying about it. So what you need is you need a spike of attention and then a lull, and then a bigger spike and then a lull, and building to a crescendo. And that is the art of this. How do we confront the global rise of authoritarianism, and how do we look at the fact that all these dictators are working together, that they have, uh, they, they're learning from each other, that they're financing each other, and everything else, and we need that kind of effort to be undertaken by the international community and those who are on the democratic side of the spectrum. And so this, to, to us, is kind of one of the biggest challenges going forward in the, in, the 20, uh, in the 21st century, which is, you know, how do we get people to come together and to recognize that we are fighting common foes, uh, and how do we elevate and focus attention on supporting those small D Democrats, again, not imposing democracy on anybody, but supporting small, home, uh, you know, small D Democrats in countries to help them build movements that can defeat dictators through democratic means. So let me leave it there. Um, you know, one of the things um, I wanted to know, Jared, is what dangers do you face um, or have you faced um, with your work? And, and where, have, where have those dangers come from? I mean, thankfully, compared to Scheidel, the dangers have been very mild. Um, I mean, uh, so I've been deported from a number of different countries. Uh, that's always a pleasure, uh, from Burma, from uh, the Maldives. Um, I was in um, <clears throat> Cambodia in December uh, with one of my clients who's facing life in prison and treason charges, and um, we did a press conference after the uh, trial outside of uh, the, the courthouse, and uh, Later that day, the police uh, publicly accused me of uh, illegally trying to coerce the judiciary through my public comments. Luckily, they didn't detain me. I mean, I only go to a place if I'm pretty sure they're not going to detain me. I mean, Hun Sen has been in power for many years in Cambodia. He, has, he doesn't arrest white foreigners, thank God. Um, but um, but by, when I got back uh, to the United States, I was then barred forever. Literally, the word was forever um, from uh, uh, from returning to Cambodia. Again, I, I try to only take calculated risks when I do these kinds of things. Um, thank you very much. Okay, um, Shahdal, uh, you mentioned, you, you, you talked about regime change not being the answer. 
And um, I actually agree with you. Um, when we finally got rid of our dictator in Kenya, uh, the, the, the people who came into power were the people who, we, who had fought in the trenches um, for, for this beautiful new you know, democratic uh, rainbow that was, was supposed, they were supposed to usher in. And we knew each one of them and we trusted them, we'd worked with them for many years. And they came in and literally the next day, they were doing exactly the same thing. They, they reneged on, on the vision and were, it was about self-interest and how many Mercedeses they could each get and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then, you, and then you also talked about uh, uh, basically integrity measures that to, to help in, in terms of um, uh, selecting the leaders. Um, I'm quite despondent. Can you talk a, a little bit more about that and, and give me some hope? Yeah, I think one needs to recognize the process through which these things happen. Revolutionaries are led by uh, people who lead revolutions it's not the same skill set to lead a revolution and to manage a country. And people need to recognize that. Sadly, it is the revolutionaries who end up be being put in a situation to run a state. Uh, and they do not have sufficient insight or knowledge or humility to recognize that they might well not be the right people. And there often are good people around them who could do that. But of course, they, they will not move away to allow that to happen. But for me, what, there is hope in a very different space. Um, while all this was going on, while I've, to a very large extent, given up pretty much on the uh, political parties, I've not given up on the students, I've not given up on the youth at large, and the real heroes of my country are not the prominent people, but our migrant la laborers, our garment workers, our farmers in the field, not only in terms of what they believe in, but they are actually the people who generate the wealth of my nation. People like me who are privileged are privileged because of what they have done. You know, I go, I've studied overseas, but I, I have a family photograph with lots of cousins. I noticed at one point I was the only one in the country. Everyone else had the benefit of pre-private, uh, pre-government education and all the perks which had been given to them by those very people who were treated the worst by, by my nation. And I think those are the people we still can rely upon because they've not given up. And I'll give you a very easy, well, for me, a very poignant example. Uh, after I got picked up and tortured and eventually released on the sixth bail attempt, I was still very much the pariah and no one would come near us. You know, uh, we lost all our clients. Uh, obviously, I was, uh, you know, very toxic. No one would talk to me. A CEO rang me on a landline to say, sorry, Shahid, nothing personal, but it's too dangerous for me to answer your phone call. Yeah? So that's how it was. We had to move from the office where we were, which was my parental home, to go to another place because that place was no longer safe enough for us. But in this new place, I'm walking out of the, of the office and there's a young woman, subaltern, with a baby, newborn baby, who comes up to me and says, 
I want you to bless my child. I want him to grow up to be as brave as you. And that was so powerful. Yeah. I, I was just going to add to that very briefly because uh, everything, of course, Scheidel is saying uh, resonates with me. But what, what's interesting to me is how... Um, Look, there are a range of dictators from, you know, the totalitarian to the semi-authoritarian. And so they have different red lines about how far they're going to go. You know, will they kill? Do they do extrajudicial killings or not? Do they, how far will they torture? What, you know, the, in each set of people I work with in these kinds of situations, of course, have ended up as political prisoners. But the dictators respond in different ways depending on their connections to the international community or not, et cetera. But one common element is that they're generally... Um, not surrounded by people other than really sycophants, and they have very little um, perspective on the world and how what they're doing is going to have an impact uh, on them, uh, not just locally but internationally. And so uh, I think the biggest mistake the dictators make is thinking that somehow they can shut up a political prisoner by, uh, or shut up a person by making them into a political prisoner. And invariably, in really virtually every case I've ever worked on, um, people start out not especially well-known in their country. I mean, there have been a few exceptions and high-profile cases I've worked on, but almost always they start out as low-profile. And the detention and their arrest means everybody's going to, within the country, learn about who they are, and they're going to see what happens in these kinds of circumstances, which is most of the time dictators are not smart. They, they don't charge people with fuzzy crimes like financial crimes or other stuff like that. You know, you, you charge people with like undermining national unity or treason or just, you know, overblown, obviously protectional crimes. And then there are, of course, in all of these cases, egregious due process abuses, which on the face of it just demonstrate how uh, arbitrary and illegal the detention actually is. And the person's popularity goes vertical, right? And they come out and on, there are a lot of people who might be afraid of being around them uh, for, for good reason. I mean, you hang out with someone like him in Bangladesh, you could find yourself self-detained. But nonetheless, you know, his renown has been dramatically increased. The power of his voice, ironically, has been amplified, not depressed. Um, and, and I think the reason why dictators think that by imprisoning a political prisoner that they can shut them up is because they're actually not, they're limited by the power of their own imagination. They don't actually believe or realize that there are some people in the world um, who will do something because it is the right thing to do and it doesn't matter what you do to them, they're not going to betray their own values, their own integrity, um, or their own commitments. Uh, and you know, the power of the human idea remains the most contagious virus in the world. Great, thank you very much. Um, let's open up to questions, comments. One of the things that you both have talked about is that change comes when you combine passion with strategy and systemic change. And it seems to me that there are some cases when those two have come together, they don't always seem to last. So I think about Allende and Chile. I think about Gandhi, who is a big strategist, not just with the passion and moral clarity. So when do you think that those two do come together and when do they last? Or do they last? Because it does seem to me that all said and done, you know, Mandela is an example of somebody who is passionate, committed, and then the new government comes in as it happened in Kenya. It didn't, it, it actually went back the worst way. So we didn't prepare enough people. Is part of it about not having enough people around a cause to actually create systemic change, uh, to make it last. 
what is it that makes things last between voice that actually is not heard and then the voice that's heard and then it remains um, as a systemic change? Well, leadership is sexy. You, know, you have an iconic leader, you follow the uh, lead by example, which is all nice and it's very good for motivation. That in itself does not provide systemic change. And I think that is where we need to really think long term, in the sense that unless you have looked at systemic shifts, you've not really made, uh, I mean, you make the headlines, you get the sound bites, but there's no, really very little substantial gain. Uh, which is why what I'm doing is very different in that sense, uh, because unless you actually are able to intervene in the processes, you're not going to leave behind uh, a substantial shift. And that requires not only long-term thinking, but it also requires the people that you lead to understand that the quick fix is not necessarily the best answer. And that you, there are things that may well take much longer, but will you know, hold out to a much substantial thing. But you can do it. I think we also underestimate our own power in many situations. And we let, us, let ourselves down. It is fear, and certainly fear is contagious, but I think courage also is contagious. Yeah, yeah, I'll just add very briefly on top of that that it, it comes back to storytelling. You know, if you talk about the situation in Bangladesh or you talk about the situation in Ukraine, you know, that's one thing and people, you know, very quickly will sort of doze off because, you know, terrible stories of suffering uh, in an abstract sense are not compelling and don't keep people's attention. But you put a story like Scheidel's story and tell his story as a journalist and what he does and show the photographs and say, how could a guy like this be in jail? Then that takes the entire you know, challenge of, uh, of uh, addressing the, the, you know, the ongoing uh, and major issues in Bangladesh, and it brings it to life in the form of one person. And that can go a long way to, I think, advancing uh, human empathy. So I think that we, um, there's a lot of reasons to be cynical about politics and to be cynical about the challenges we face in the world, but there's also a lot of reason to have hope. Uh, and I think that uh, you know, even as people struggle to achieve democracy and human rights for their own countries, um, by giving, uh, you know, by being allies to people like Scheidel to help amplify their voices, right, that has a dramatic impact on human behavior. This is Alan Stoga. I want to thank Satawa, Shahadul, and Jared for this conversation, as well as for the work that they are doing in their own countries, as well as around the world. Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcast and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org. Thank you, and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation. <laughs>